0: I am a god, and I am not a god. Either way, you are my creatures. I keep you alive. Inside I am hot beyond all telling, and yet my outside is even hotter. At my touch you burn, though I spin outside the sky. As I breathe my big, slow breaths, you freeze and burn. Freeze and burn. Someday I will eat you. For now I feed you, beware my regard, never look at me. The Climate Futures, a podcast where Harvard professors and experts discuss cutting-edge research on climate change and explain scientific and social solutions to the problems presented by climate change. This season, we're taking Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction novel, Ministry for the Future, as our guide. In the passage we just heard, chapter two of the book, Robinson describes the sun, which promises devastating heat waves and also presents the possibility of near-infinite solar energy. Today, we're going to be talking about the second possibility, although you should say Stay tuned for a future episode about the first. Robinson alludes in his book to the idea of space-based solar power, which promises a utopia, energy for free, anywhere on Earth, forever. But what is SBSP, and how might it work? We're very lucky to be joined by Dr. Martin Elvis, an astrophysicist at Harvard's Center for Astrophysics, who has published some 400 papers on supermassive black holes and has nearly 30,000 peer citations. Uh, He's recently gotten interested in asteroid mining. Uh, He brags that he is probably the first professional astronomer to visit the Harvard Business School on Business. Uh, And he's been really generous to talk to us today about space-based solar power and some of the possibilities of asteroid mining. Dr. Martin, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Hi, I'm uh, an astrophysicist. Uh, I've been working at the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian, for a long time, pretty much since I did my PhD. And uh, I've studied uh, X-ray astronomy and uh, quasars and supermassive black holes for a long, long time, but uh, I have recently in the last, I don't know, eight years, uh, started working on space resources and uh, whether we could make use of those. And of course, my secret motive is to use them to make bigger and better telescopes because we always want more light. But uh, uh, that's that ends up being a kind of side issue, really. The, the resource issues about from asteroids or the moon uh, have become pretty fascinating in themselves. So...
0: So of course, one of those resources from space that you're interested in is the iron from asteroids. Uh, but another resource is solar power, which some scientists think we could collect in space and then beam back down to Earth. And your study of an interest in asteroid mining has led you down this path of thinking about SBSP. So maybe for the uninlined and uninitiated, uh, what is this whole idea of a space-based solar power? What's this all about?
1: Uh, well, the idea goes back at least to 1968 when uh, 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 Peter Glaser published a paper in Science talking about how it would be a really smart idea to have uh, solar panels in space where they can see the sun all the time and there's no absorption by clouds. You uh, half It's not like half the time you're at night, you get continuous power and you get more power because the atmosphere absorbs the ultraviolet and some of the other wavelengths, so you can just put the solar panels and collect all of that and then you beam it down to earth with microwaves which is the idea, um, sort of high frequency radio and collect it on the ground and then it, you've, uh, you've there's enormous amounts of energy available of course uh, from the sun in orbit and you could power the entire uh, consumption of the earth from this and that was he thought he wanted to free us from the uh, uh, bonds of uh, fire uh, and of course now we really really want to do that because we have to decarbonize our economies seems like a good idea why not
0: Oh, so I'm definitely interested in that question of uh, why not, as you maybe rhetorically were asking. But um, before that, maybe let's quickly talk about some of the technical ideas behind this. So, for example, I mean, we all know basically what solar panels do. They get electricity from the sun. And uh, for those who maybe aren't that familiar with how they work, they basically allow the photons from the light from the sun to knock electrons free from atoms. And that flow of electrons generates electricity. And presumably the solar panel in space is pretty much like a solar panel on Earth. But the more unfamiliar part of this idea is you talked about beaming the power down from space. And there are basically two ideas about how to do this. So the first is laser transmission, which sounds a little bit science fiction. But um, what are the advantages of this method?
1: Yep. Well, lasers uh, may may be more efficient. And the one thing they do is uh, that the beam is smaller, so the you don't need a very big device to send the uh, uh, big antenna to send the power down or or to receive it, and that would be that would be good if you particularly want to attach a receiver to a moving object like an airplane or something. Yeah, it makes certain applications more practical.
0: <laughs> All right, and the second idea is using microwaves, uh, which is maybe the more common idea or the idea that's considered a little more realistic. And so how developed is that technology? And is it as efficient as a power line on earth? And you know, the big economic question, what do we think it might cost?
1: Well, uh, you, can, you can send a radio beam and then collect it. Obviously we do that all the time. Uh, it's not a very efficient process is one of the problems. You tend to lose a lot of the power on the ways. That means you have to have bigger solar panels in space. And uh, I just did a quick calculation. We're talking so square kilometers of, of uh, solar panels to get a megawatt of power, perhaps more. So that, that's kind of a lot, which means it has a knock-on effect. Because you need the big area, you have to have a big structure to support it, and that's going to have a mass of thousands of tons probably, and that makes it extremely expensive uh, to get some a ton of material to launch to uh, orbit. And we're probably talking a distant orbit, geostationary orbit, not uh, nearby low-Earth orbit like the space station, because then you're still in darkness half the time. You want to be in light almost all the time. So we'd probably put it in some orbit like uh, geostationary orbit. And that's twice as hard to get to energetically in in terms of mass. Um, So it would cost you uh, $10 million, $20 million in standard uh, units, uh, standard rocketry. Uh, maybe SpaceX will cut that by even a factor of 10. But if you're talking billions of dollars uh, to put together the structure you need to hold your space-based solar power device, panels and and transmission devices. So it, it it gets to be a huge capital expense. And obviously, we, we don't want a megawatt. We want many gigawatts, uh, which is a So uh, I think the Three Gorges Dam in China uh, is the biggest hydroelectric power generator on Earth, and it's a 20 gigawatt uh, output. So we we need many times that if we're going to replace all of the carbon fuel that we're uh, burning. So it gets to be an enormous capital expense, and there's no way uh, I, I think that that's going to happen on a large scale quickly. The cost would have to come down immensely.
0: Well, I'm hoping you're going to tell us there's some kind of solution to this cost problem. But before we get to that, uh, just to help the viewer or the listener get a mental image of this, what, what, do, what would you see as you looked up into the sky in a world with space-based solar power? And uh, what would you see on land that was necessary to collect that power?
1: Gosh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, uh, what you'd actually see in the sky these a pretty big thing. You would certainly see them. And of course, they may glint if the angles are just right, then they may cause a glint and then they'd be very bright. So although they're in geostationary orbit, they are square kilometers and probably many square kilometers. So yes, you would see them. I haven't thought about that. That's, that's uh, given the recent uh, uproar over the Starlink satellites from SpaceX and other constellations for worldwide internet from low Earth orbit, uh, that could be an issue. Yeah, good point. And on the ground, you would need uh, receivers. Uh, The idea is you would uh, be able to get away. You could concentrate the microwaves into a a smaller area than you would uh, to get the equivalent power from solar panels on the ground. So it wouldn't be many square kilometers of of receiving station. It would be something um, at least 10 times smaller. Although if it was was the same as as, uh, just putting solar panels in a field, then you just put solar panels in a field because it's it's so much cheaper, right? Uh, That, of course, leads on to uh, uh, worries about uh, somebody taking command, an evil genius taking command of the uh, the beam and concentrating it even more and frying uh, uh, something on the ground and uh, killing people and doing bad things the way they always do in Bond movies.
0: Wow. So it's really very possibly a national security problem, something that governments would take a real interest in. And it's also very expensive. So why exactly would we want to use space-based solar power? What what are the advantages compared to just putting a solar panel in a field?
1: Well, look, there are maybe places where power is currently very, very expensive uh, to uh, to provide and uh, one of the first suggestions was uh, in helping uh, in war zones where you want to provide, instead of fueling your trucks with gasoline that you have to truck in at a great risk and enormous expense, you could beam it down uh, directly to wherever somebody was on earth And uh, so that's, that's a uh, non-benign but uh, perhaps practical uh, way in which it could be used, but the same would apply to any disaster situation where It's very hard to get supplies in, and uh, roads may not exist even. They may have been taken out by earthquakes, fires, what have you. So the the cost would be justified. It would actually be the cheapest solution. And that would be much smaller scale. Then we wouldn't be talking probably even megawatts. So it might be a, a way of getting started on this and checking it out and seeing if there are problems. So... The, the U.S. Navy has conducted experiments on beaming microwave power in space, uh, and so they must be interested in this, perhaps to their ships even at sea. They don't tell us why, but so I'm guessing.
0: Yeah, far be it from us to know the whims and wheels of the U.S. government. Uh, so so to get this straight, you think that space-based solar power could be a real contributor to decarbonization uh, if it turns out to work. Uh, so, why do you think that? Like, what is it? What is it useful for?
1: Uh, well, there are certain problems. It's very it things. It's very hard to decarbonize, and one of those is transoceanic travel, right? So, uh, ships and airplanes. Uh, are very inefficient and, and uh, big users of, of carbon fuels, and it's very hard to find a replacement. So for ships, you could uh, go nuclear. We've had a lot of nuclear-powered uh, aircraft carriers for, for 50 years or more, 60 years, and there hasn't been an accident so far as I know. I think we would know about that if it happened. So uh, they can be very safe. Uh, so you, that would be one solution for that. Uh, but airplanes, you're not going to put nuclear reactors on airplanes. They're, they're too big and heavy, and uh, I think people would be rightly worried about them crashing. So there, there's a there's a company that is interested in trying to beam power up uh, from stations across the continent to air, power airplanes, and they're probably not going to start with big passenger airplanes, but keeping drones up for a long time or anything like that. Um, and when i heard about this i thought well that's that's odd uh if you were a space type person like me you naturally think of the opposite beam it down from space and now you that's pretty good for um transatlantic travel because you can't beam it up from from the ocean surface of the ocean there's nowhere to, uh, to get the power in the first place and uh you have to worry about clouds and birds in the way and things, because microwaving birds is is not a nice thing to do. Um, But if you're beaming it down, the power down from space, your airplanes are flying above essentially all the clouds and all the birds. And so so long as your beam hits the airplane and doesn't miss, uh, you're you're not going to fry any birds, and you're going to provide power continuously to the airplane. So it might just possibly is a way in which we can still uh, take our trips uh over the overseas and uh not uh and decarbonize at the same time it's a bit fanciful as an idea but I threw it out there just in case uh, uh, somebody take, picks it up
0: well it seems as though this really should be researched. It seems like it has the potential to change the way that the whole world is organized. Um, but you mentioned that besides the technical research questions, there's also kind of economic social questions. Yes. So I wonder if we could talk a little about that.
1: Well, but so the real problem would still be getting the capital costs down to where it was uh, not not ridiculous. And so that that's where asteroid mining would come in or lunar mining, because um, One of the things that's surprising about asteroids, and you can go to any science museum really and look at the meteorite collection, they will have iron meteorites there. And I know when I first heard about this, I thought, oh, they have little flecks of iron in them. No, 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 they are solid lumps of nickel iron, right? And it's it's just uh, that's because they they are come from the core of the of the planetesimals, the originals. Bodies that formed in the solar system that melted, just like the Earth, and the iron sank to the centre. And then they got split up and broken up by collisions. And so the chunks of of the core, solid nickel iron, are floating about in space. And there's a mission going to go to one next year called Psyche, and it, it's hoped to see what the core of a, of a planet looks like, because we know you never you can't see that otherwise, except in this broken up case. Anyway, you can also take go to those asteroids and mine them and originally initially you might mine them for platinum and uh, other precious metals which are scarce on earth in the crust but not scarce on earth in the core they actually concentrate there so they also concentrate in these metal asteroids Uh, but the iron itself you know it could be uh, very valuable if you can you can Maybe make a quick profit by getting the platinum and coming back home with that, which is worth $50 million a ton. The iron is worth much less. But maybe you could very slow, there are are ways to bring it back slowly, which might take even 10 years, uh, that would cost very little, very little extra. If you made money off off the platinum, it wouldn't cost you much more to uh, bring all the iron back to a, a nice, safe, high orbit where you would have to park it because no one's going to let you uh, bring it close to the Earth, uh, which could be dangerous. It would be a real environmental impact. And then you've basically got uh, maybe a million tons of iron just sitting there waiting to be used, virtually free. Certainly free compared with launching it from the ground, where at the moment that would cost you about, oh, uh, maybe $3 million a ton to send to a geostationary orbit. But if you get it free because of asteroid mining, then you might say, well, now we've got the iron, we can, we can build this structure and it all becomes feasible. Then the cost might come down to something intelligent and, and actually commercially viable.
0: Ah, so would this be done by robots in space or are you envisioning humans living on asteroids?
1: At the asteroid, I think it's all got to be robotic. It could be controlled from Earth, but only with a long delay time. Robot has to be smart enough to look after itself for at least half an hour. So I think using people in, uh, certainly in low Earth orbit, and then later in geostationary orbit, that's quite plausible. And people are very adaptable.
0: So now we've talked about some of the main technical barriers to implementation, as well as some of the social and economic issues with pursuing space-based solar power. Would you sum up for me, you know, to what extent is this advantageous? To what extent is it really worth pursuing despite all these obstacles?
1: Well, <laughs> um, the main advantage is it's continuous. It's, you're never in, in darkness. You don't have night time, right? Uh, you do get a little more power, but it's on the order of 20, 25% more power collected. But then you lose a lot in transmission. That's the trick, is, is, is it, it's not advantageous in all cases. Sometimes it's just simpler to have a solar panels on, the, on your roof. It could be advantageous uh, in places where it's very difficult to get uh, power supplied otherwise.
0: So i want to revisit this asteroid mining concept which you brought up as a potential solution to the capital cost issue. You have a book about asteroid mining uh, and you talk in that book about how there are three motives to go mine asteroids, which are Love, fear, and greed. Yes. And you think greed might be the most powerful. You think governments aren't so likely to mine asteroids. Uh, private companies are more likely to at least start it out. Could you comment a little bit on, on this idea and maybe the implications that this has for space-based solar power if it does depend on asteroid mining? Uh,
1: I think it's only going to get to a big enough scale for that kind of for space-based solar power if it's something that makes a profit. And when I talk about greed, I just mean the profit motive. Uh, because that that doesn't depend on spending people's tax dollars. And it, so it's not limited in scale. It will just grow up to whatever size the market will bear, which is probably pretty large, depending on how the space in-space economy grows. There's a, a, I think there's a lot of reason to think that the in-space economy is going to grow pretty fast. We've got a film crew on the International Space Station right now from Russia filming a, a, a first in-space movie, professional movie being made. And uh, we've had the first space tourists go both suborbital uh, with Blue Origin and uh, Virgin Galactic and orbital with uh, SpaceX in the Inspiration4 mission. And then it's not just tourism won't stop there. uh, Axiom Space is going to have has a contract to put its own space station module attached to the International Space Station in 2025. And then they keep adding modules, four or five more modules, until they have all the components they need to be an independent space station, a private, commercially run space station. And they've designed their uh, modules... They've got the famous uh, design, you know, six-star hotel designer uh, Philippe Stark to, in, to do their interiors. So they're clearly looking for well-heeled tourists and expecting them to go up and, and, and float about in space for even longer than the Inspiration4 people did, perhaps a week, two weeks, and, and you know. It's somewhere new to go, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> people will surely pay a lot for that. But uh, what they might need is uh, is better is showers and a better toilet. In which case, that means uh, oh, <laughs> they're going to need uh, a lot more water than they get away with in the Spartan conditions on the on the International Space Station. So there could be people trying to import water not from Earth, which it costs still. Uh, one and a half, two, three million per tonne, <clears throat> but maybe from the moon to begin with, where we think where we, uh, there appears to be quite a lot of water hidden in the South Pole, the dark regions of the South Pole, and also from asteroids eventually. It won't just be tourism, right? There'll be research stations that could well, for, apparently uh, uh, gene genetic uh, sequences get expressed differently in space, in zero gravity, uh, for reasons that are not clear, There's lots of medical uh, possibilities that people can, they think, build uh, uh, three-dimensional complex human organs in space because of the low gravity. Putting one cell on top of another doesn't work very well in in gravity because they're sloppy and they form a goo instead. In in zero gravity, that doesn't happen. So there's already uh, a company called TechShot that's experimenting with, with building uh, human building cells into structures, complex structures in space, and have, with the goal eventually of printing complex human organs like a heart. There's some advanced experiments now making much better optical fibers in space that could increase the bandwidth of our internet by a factor of ten or something like that. So all those cat videos were just shoo, straight like that. Yeah. No end to the demand, right? It's just an illustration that we probably haven't really begun to understand the advantages that we can get from uh, the zero gravity environment there.
0: Wow, I am sold. (laughs) Well, I'm not. (laughs) But uh, what do you think the chances are that the American government or the governments of some other countries would would get interested in this and would try and reap some of the benefits that you think there might be in asteroid mining or in space-based solar power?
1: There's a lot of a lot of countries want to go to the moon to begin with which is where the immediate action is there must be there's more than a dozen and there are several uh, groups several countries and groups of countries planning to establish human bases on the moon all more or less in the same place as a, a particularly good location near the south pole <clears throat> that isn't very big. So there could well be three competing bases in, in the same little area, which could be interesting. Of course, the US is, has got this Artemis and its Artemis Accord program and the Artemis Accords with a number of countries signing on. China and Russia have an agreement to build a lunar base by by 2035, which is still not that far away. And then the European the Space Agency initiated a thing called uh, Moon Village. And they've also now got a number of Uh, Countries signed on in in, in various groupings.
0: You get the sense the moon is going to be kind of crowded. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, the concentration of resources on the moon in just small geographical areas is, is just naturally going to lead to conflict. And there's going to be a lot of trouble in deciding how to resolve those conflicts.
0: You get a sense the same conflict will be present with space-based solar power though, right? Like, I mean, governments, private companies, everyone coming in for a slice of the pie if it really does turn out to be a cheap source of energy or really in demand for areas that need it.
1: Yes, and, and people always say this could be big enough that you could Nike could make sure that there's a gap in the solar panels in mean, the swoosh pattern, right? And you have a, a nice lit up area and there's a big swoosh out of it. And think of the money they'd pay for that and it'll never go away. <laughs>
0: That is frightening. So, so there's an ethical issue. Is is kind of what you're saying here?
1: Yes. There you go. Does that need uh, a night sky uh, should not be violated like this? And one, many of us would say there's a lot of a lot of worries. Uh, but this is normal. Things have to be sorted out. I think uh, what I try to do is is raise the issues as quickly as possible because uh, they ought to be surfaced before we get too far. And people have a lot of vested interests in in the answer. So, if I have a role, I think that's it.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting general theme, I think, that I've seen in this kind of work on climate change. I mean, we'll hear David Keith talk about this with geoengineering, that there are many things which we don't even have a regulatory framework or even really an imagination of what it's going to have to look like. Uh, And so it's really important work that scientists and people in academia and people and activists are doing right now is kind of trying to start talking about these issues before they become you know, imminent crises that we have to confront. Uh, yes. And we will be talking to quite a few people, uh, in later podcast episodes about this. I think I mentioned Professor Keith touched on this issue in his interview about solar engineering. And, uh, so if you're interested, tune into future episodes. Ah, but back to space-based solar power. One thing that I thought of while we were talking is, is it the case that launching rockets into space is incredibly carbon emitting? And if so, wouldn't that be sort of defeating the point a little bit?
1: Uh, It's not too bad. I have uh, some numbers on it in 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 an email from a guy in in Bremen in Germany who's looked at it. A bit more worrying is the re-entry where you you heat up the underside, right? glowing red hot and so on. That can actually uh, change the chemistry of the atmosphere it's going through and produce uh, nitrogen oxide compounds, nitrogen oxygen compounds. And apparently, if you got up to where it's like daily uh, re-entries or something like that, then you're actually starting to make a, a worrying difference to the atmosphere.
0: So that's, um, that's not ideal.
1: Well, I think we need to look at it, yes. Is there, are there ways around that? And I, There may be, because uh, instead of just using the solid body of the uh, spaceship, you could throw out a gigantic um, parachute-type thing called a balut, which would be much, much bigger so it could slow you down more more gently in the upper atmosphere, and and you'd never get that hot.
0: So my my general takeaway from this so far is that there's quite a few areas where somebody ought to be looking more into some topic. Oh
1: yeah, more research is needed. (laughs) Give me thumbs. (laughs) That's that's how every scientist ends everything, right? Papers, talk. Yeah,
0: I can for sure say, I've heard that from every interview I've done so far. M-R-I-N. More research is needed. Address check to the following address. <laughs> that kind of thing.
1: Or receipt only. Right.
0: Well, I, th- I think we've sort of exhausted space-based solar power. So before we wrap up, would you mind telling us a little bit about what you work on when you're not working on space-based solar power? You're an astrophysicist. So what's your day-to-day research?
1: Yes. So otherwise, if I'm not doing that, I work on on uh, quasars and active galactic nuclei. And those are... Uh, the result of having a giant black hole in the center of a galaxy, the way there is, as we've now seen an image of it in the center of, of M87, a nearby galaxy. And there's no convincing reason why there are these giant black holes at the centers of galaxies. But once they're there, they don't just sit there. Gas is is can fall down towards them, and as it falls down, it tends. To, it's never going to just fall in just straight. And if it's disturbed enough, perhaps by another galaxy going by, this seems to be quite common. Some of that gas will start to flow in, so it'll form a gigantic disk of of gas. Sometimes the result of this. Uh, accretion of of gas is that some of the gas gets accelerated up to near light speed and shoots out uh, of the accretion region. So understanding all of that has kept me busy for quite a long time.
0: Oh, it's fantastically interesting. And I wish we had a whole nother episode to just talk about that. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to say or comment on?
1: There's, a, there's an ethical side to this. And it, so on policy, I work with Alana Krolikovsky and with Tony Milligan, who is an ethicist. So Tony and I wrote a paper saying, what if our economy just kept growing in, out into space at the same rate it's been growing for the last 200 years of the Industrial Revolution? Right, and of course, I did the little calculation, and we both went, "Oh my God!" (laughs) Um, If we, if it grows at exactly the same rate, uh, and we use iron production as a proxy for the whole economy, that the rate is such that it doubles every twenty years. So, if it carries on at that rate, enabled by all that iron in the asteroids, two hundred years from now it'll be another thousand times bigger. Four hundred years from now it'll be a million times bigger, because it's a thousand times a thousand. And uh, at that point, we'll be running out of iron. There won't be any accessible iron left in the, in the whole solar system. So we're going to have a bit of a problem. we called our paper um, how much of the solar system should we leave as wilderness? How much should we leave untouched by policy? And we reckon that we should leave seven-eighths untouched and only one-eighth should be exploited. And that's because one-eighth takes you 350 years to get to that point. And then from there to exhaustion is just 60 years. So it's a tripwire. We say, if you've got that far, you, you're about done. So we should think about that right from the beginning and try to instill uh, some kind of ethic that says, uh, you've got to watch out for this. And maybe you've got to re- uh, prevent endless Uh, exponential growth.
0: Wow, that's very different from the dominant Elon Musk, even Star Trek-esque way of thinking about space.
1: I know, but so people talk about the uh, untold riches of space, and the answer is they are vast. It is true, they are vast, 10 million times what we have on Earth, at least, just in iron. But vast is not the same as infinite, and so you can't treat it as infinite.
0: Well, that was really well said, and I think a perfect note to end this on, that note of caution, of warning, uh, and if I think some wonder for the vast depths of space. Thanks so much to Dr. Martin Elvis, an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, for coming to talk to us today about space-based solar power, about asteroid mining, and about his own work as an astrophysicist. This was such a fun conversation for me, and I hope it was fun for you as well.
1: I Oh, absolutely, yes.
0: That's good to hear. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Elvis, and thank you everyone for listening. This has been episode one of Climate Futures at Harvard, a podcast exploring social, technical, and economic solutions to climate change. Up next, you can expect to hear about lawsuits on behalf of future generations, solar geoengineering, and even climate blockchain. I'm your host, Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee, and this has been Climate Futures.